I have been to the mountaintop. Another world is possible. We carry a new world here in our hearts. It is growing this minute. You're listening to Navara FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Recognise any of those statements? They're all claims, political claims, about the future, about the idea that some other ordering of human society is possible, maybe even latent in the wreckage of the world that surrounds us. Virtually all political movements of the left generate claims about the future. In fact, you might say they depend on just such claims, that such claims are really at the heart of our motivation. They're a basic ingredient of politics. So what's happened to them? Usually discussions along these lines cite that old Jameson line about it being easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism and proceed from there. But I think another phenomenon is observable, and it has two prongs. On the one hand, the mood of change without the content has become the default of a certain liberal politics of the centre. No new world, just vibes, hopey, changey vibes. And on the other hand, on certain parts of the left, even to make positive claims about the future is derided as some kind of hopeless faux pas, maybe even something that could be dangerous. Why? It's the second part of that question that I'm most interested in today. And the argument usually starts with a line from who else? Karl Marx. And the line that's often trotted out is that we are not or should not be in the business of preparing recipes for the cookshops of the future. That's a quotation from Marx, of course. Uh, So therefore, we shouldn't talk of the new society at all. But can this really be right? How on earth did this idea come about? I knew just who to talk to about it. Hello, everybody. I'm uh, Peter Hudis, uh, author of uh, Marx's uh, Concept of the Alternative to Capitalism and Fronts for Known Philosopher of the Barricades and a number of other things. And also general editor of the works of Rosa Luxemburg. And it turns out that this question, once you start pulling at it, once you start thinking about, well, how could you possibly come to that conclusion? It takes you to some really interesting places. It takes you through the eye of the storm when it comes to the concerns that Marx worried about all of his life what a free human being might actually look like. Alienation as a principle that organises the whole of society. The way in which human beings create things from their work that become instruments of domination and exploitation, uh, even the relationship between individual consciousness and the historical movement of a society. And along the way to those things, we'll stop off and ask what Marxists today would actually make of actually existing Marx, and what connects a 19th century anarchist and today's mealy-mouthed tinkering social democrats, and really, what the use of all this is to those of us interested in liberation today. But we started out with that line about not providing recipes for the cookshops of the future. Where did that come from? Why its sudden popularity? What does it tell us, and why is it incomplete? Well, it's, a, it's an incomplete view because, first of all, it lifts the comment of Marx out of its historical context. Um, Marx was deeply influenced uh, by currents of thought of his day inclu- within the socialist movement. Um, and he came to an understanding of socialism and communism through a critical engagement uh, with those in the movement. And the notion that he did not have any kind of basic conception of what socialism or communism is, seems hard to square with his commitment uh, to such a cause. Uh, And you can say this about just about anybody, right? Why would you give your life to a cause that you, that, that is a, um, an empty signifier that you can't say anything for sure about what that consists of the context in which Marx made that statement, of course, was his reacting against those who were simply intellectuals, essentially dreaming up, out of their heads, how the world ought to be. And Marx is a Hegelian. The task as he sees it is not to speak of the world as it ought to be, but what is the world compelled to be based upon the conditions and the struggles that are imminent within the historical process. So he doesn't wish to set himself up as the arbiter to decide how to arrange the furniture of the new society, 
But there's a concept of a new society that clearly motivates his activism and his theory. And just as it motivates all of us, none of us would become socialist or radicals or leftists unless we felt not just that something is bad about this world, but that we think that there's some alternative to it. Now, it's otherwise we wouldn't be on the left. You can be on the right and oppose existing conditions. But why are we on the left? It's because we're reaching for something which is an alternative to those conditions. Now, the second part of your question, why is there this tendency to, I think it's a kind of an intellectual laziness to fall back on that comment on Marx, abstracted from the context in which it was made, and also, frankly, abstracted from the fact that Marx didn't live to see certain things that we've experienced over the last hundred years. Marx never saw an aborted or failed revolution that was destroyed from within, like the Russian revolution wouldn't transform into Stalinism. Would he have said the exact same thing on everything? had he lived to see what happened to Marxism in his name. So um, the the reason that people fall into that kind of intellectual laziness of just saying, well, but I don't, we don't need to discuss those things is because then they have to come to grips with the possible shortcomings of their limitations, uh, the shortcomings in their understandings of the, of a new society. If you just leave it indefinite and say, well, I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to fight to abolish private ownership of the means of production. And you don't ask yourself, but what happens if we get that and yet we don't change other things in society? Will it actually make things better or will it make things worse? There's a whole host of questions like that that don't have to be raised, don't have to be discussed. But frankly, I don't see how the radical project has a future without discussing those things. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we should come on to, to talk about that because I think it, it comes back, especially towards the end of the book and especially when we consider you know, how, how, how you move that project forwards. I guess... At the start of that book, you outline this division in the way that that Marx has been read, you know, between what you call kind of objectivist and subjectivist readers of Marx, both of which I think you know do do this really interesting job of kind of illuminating you know various sort of useful contours of Marx's thought. You know, on the one hand, you've got the kind of analysis of this sort of chemically pure form of capitalism, the latter like the the subjectivist kind kind of you know interested in this question of agency, this question of kind of proletarian agency, which I think is hugely important but they're they're obviously all quite partial readings and I suppose the way that you're talking about it here you know raises a kind of double question for me like one is the question of you know why study Marx's thought at all given that historical gap between then and now then two does that mean that there's something quite important about trying to grasp Marx as a whole which has a special bearing on this question of the alternative to capitalism right um it's very tempting and it has been done over and over and over again to read Marx in bits and pieces uh, now, it's not to suggest Marx got, you don't start from the a priori assumption Marx got everything right, because <laughs> obviously there's a lot of things he didn't get right. But you you have to begin by trying to understand a thinker like Marx in terms of what's the internal coherence of his ideas. So if, if Marx is devoted to proletarian revolution uh, and the emancipation of the working class, of which there's no doubt, but at the same time, Marx in, works like capital. Uh, has an analysis of the logic of capital in a kind of on a level, high level of abstraction, which some people could take to mean an analysis of a chemically pure capitalism, which there is. It is an analysis of a chemically pure capitalism. Das Kapital is not a book about any capitalism that existed in Marx's time. It's a book about the ultimate logic and trajectory of capitalism over the course of time. Well, you have these two things that seem to be perhaps in contradiction with each other. If they are in contradiction with each other, Marx is not a fundamentally systematic and viable thinker. Uh, you can't just say, well, we're going to throw one part out and take the other, and because then it means that it, internal to his project is an, an insuperable contradiction, an antinomy. But instead, if you try to understand Marx's project as a whole, is what is the internal coherence of these two sides of his political, theoretical, revolutionary project, then you enrich your understanding of each side of it. And you see that why he's supposing the pro- supporting the proletarian class struggle it's not just because he wants to change the property form or change market market relations, which of course he wants to change, but he wants to change the form of human praxis that's embodied in this historical era by alienated conditions of labor and life. And that's the target of his critique of class society. And if you also see that from the other side, yes, he has an analysis of an abstract model of capitalism, but it's in order to focus attention on the specific human relations that the class struggle and other struggles has to confront, target, and uproot. So it's, a, it's in that sense that I'd like to speak of the totality of Marx, 
not that everything he wrote we have to follow or accept or even bother reading necessarily. There's a few things of Marx that, but you know, wrote, wrote a hundred page book against this guy Herr Vogt. I mean, it's not what I take to bed at night. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but that's what I mean. That these fundamental dimensions of his thought are they reckon, are, are they internally coherent? And if they and does one inform the other in a way that gives us a deeper understanding of what is our concern? What does it mean to really have a genuine alternative to capitalism? Okay, so I mean, you mentioned something there. So I think I think we should dig into to some of the kind of key themes because one of the things I think the the book does really well. Is, is that it traces these kind of pretty fundamental concerns for Marx, which and traces the way that he elaborates them in sort of different ways as he kind of moves through thinking about the way that kind of actually existing social movements of his time and their defeats have uh, you know influences on on his thinking as well as kind of engaging with the th- theoretical work of kind of thinkers of his time. Um, I, I was tempted to to start by asking you something about something that that's often considered. A lacuna in Marx's work, which was about the state, but actually, you know, it's definitely a concern of the young Marx when he's thinking about the relationship between the state and civil society and their inversion. And it's something that you trace um, in, in the book when he's thinking about that and reading Hegel and thinking about how those two things fit together. But maybe we could start actually with something that seems even more fundamental in your account, and and it's it's something you mentioned there, which is the question of alienation. And this concept is really really central to Marx's thinking throughout his life, and certainly to your account. Of Marx's thoughts, and maybe it's actually even more central for your account than it is in lots of other accounts of Marx's thoughts. So, so why is why does it occupy so central a position for you? Right, because um, it is very easy to get trapped, as Marx reminds us, in the surface phenomenal appearances of capitalism, rather than target its fundamental essence. The essence of of any social system does not disclose itself to us immediately. That's why critical thinking is necessary. That's why theory is necessary to try to go past that. So, for instance, today you hear endless amounts of talk about neoliberalism and critiques of neoliberalism, and basically with some critiques of uh, deregulation, free markets, and privatization. But the question is, um, that's not the fundamental issue. The question is, you can eliminate free markets. You can have replace statification, privatization with statification. You can replace you know, free labor markets, quote unquote, with regulated labor markets or regulated financial markets, etc. And what history has shown is you still don't make an exit from capitalism. So what does make an exit from capitalism? Now, what's remarkable is Marx anticipates this debate, which is a 20th century debate, because it's in the 20th century that people who took more of the phenomenal features of capitalism for the essence of capitalism and focused their criticism on that, when they came to power, they didn't really transform social relations of production, let alone of everyday life. There wasn't a free association of the producers that came into an existence. Instead, what there was, was statified property and, of course, regulated markets. And yet you still are within capitalism, ultimately. And then at, at a certain amount of time, it's a kind of state capitalism. Well, perhaps it migrates back over into more of a market capitalism, but we're still not out of the problem. So without the concept of alienation, you don't get to the essence of the problem. What is it? What are the conditions for the possibility of the market and for private ownership of the means of production? That's the real question, I think, that Moss is asking him. Not just what's wrong with private property in the market. What are the conditions for their possibility? And he says as early as 1844 manuscripts in a statement that is very counterintuitive, and frankly, a lot of people don't know what to make of it. He says it appears that private property is the cause of alienated labor. But he says it's actually the other way around. Alienated labor is the cause of private property. Now, you read that, you say, wait a second. Private property has been around for a while. Alienated labor comes in with the Industrial Revolution. How can he make such a statement like that? But he's making a logical statement that so long as there is alienated labor, the forms of property and the forms of exchange are one way or another going to mirror that dehumanized human relationship. So you got to change that fundamentally dehumanized human relationship to adequately transform these phenomena that we oppose. So yes, we should be against neoliberalism, but the critique of neoliberalism should go much deeper than a critique of privatization and a critique of free markets. It has to go to a critique of one, the social form of labor that defines capitalism, but no less than that, the form of human activity in general that defines capitalism. Because after all, the mode of labor 
shapes the very mode of human interaction. And that's where we can get into issues of gender and race, by the way, uh, as to whether this kind of approach, even if Marx himself doesn't systematically explore those issues, this is, it's that kind of focus on alienation that enables a Marxism of the 21st century to be intersectional in the truest sense of the word. Right, right. I, I mean, maybe, maybe I, I'm, I'm just thinking here that there, there will be some listeners to this for whom the concept of alienation is like maybe they've come across it, maybe they've seen it, you know, out there in in the course of kind of 20th century literature, or they've heard that it's something that's important um, in Marxism. And I just think it, it's maybe worth just developing a little bit the kind of definition of alienation um, on a really kind of fundamental level, because you know, on the one hand, it has this kind of specific deployment in Marxism, which is, you know, to do with the, that transformation, uh, the transformation of the kind of relationship uh, between people uh, and, and the relationship to labor. But it also gets taken up, of course, in the course of the 20th century by thinkers who are using it in a much kind of looser way. And, and not in a way that I think is totally useless, right? In, in a way that, that says something about the kind of psychological condition um, uh, of human relations under capital. So, so can you give us like a quick potted uh, tour through the concept of alienation? Well, uh, I don't think that it would be correct to say that Marx uh, is a theorist of alienation. I think it's probably more accurate to say he's a theorist of the transcendence of alienation. In other words, uh, uh, the existentialism, for instance, which unfortunately or fortunately, however point of view, is not discussed much anymore, but existentialism was in love with alienation, right? In literature, in the arts, in, in philosophy, it was all about alienation. And of course, that's understandable given the historical period in which that current of thought arose, uh, in the middle of the very horrific 20th century. Um, but Marx's concept of alienation, and of course, Lukács has a lot to do also with extending the concept of alienation, though he calls it reification. He didn't know the 1844 manuscripts at the time where it's more explicitly expressed, but he tries to apply that to cultural factors. And that is the responsible for so much of the last hundred years of efforts to relate alienation outside of labor process, outside of merely production relations. And that is a very valuable in general discussion. But I think we always have to keep in mind that the alienation from Marx is not assuming some kind of fixed or essentialist human nature that you are alienated from. We are alienated from our activity. Now, he has a concept, I believe, of human nature, but it's a very thin concept. It's a capacity for conscious purposeful creation. That's a capacity that we have. We don't always employ that capacity so well, and many times we employ it for terrible purposes. So it's not a morally, uh, it's, it's not a moral judgment, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a thin definition of human capacity, but what we are alienated from, we become alienated from that very capacity. We become alienated from a very activity. So some people reject the theory of alienation because they view it as a kind of naive holdover of kind of an enlightenment humanism uh, that has a very fixed and rigid view of human nature and, frankly, a naive one. I think Marx has not has progressed well beyond that uh, in his theory of alienation. But at the same time, he's not simply looking at alienation for the sake of making a of condemning us to a world of alienation. The left radicalism, intellectual traditions that in the, have been heavily influenced by Heideggerian, by Heidegger, and that whole train of thought basically treats alienation as a condition of, uh, an inevitable condition of, of human existence. And Marx is not doing that at all. Marx is saying that this is a historically specific process that arises basically through the Industrial Revolution and the specifics that are integral to capitalism. And his, his concern is not the alienation of the product from the producer as much as the alienation inherent in the very activity of laboring itself. And that cuts much deeper than, for instance, uh, speaking about which everybody really talks about today, and understandably, because we have such a terribly unequal and unfair society, but it cuts against those who think of socialism primarily, if not exclusively, as a fair redistribution of surplus value. But Marx is not interested in the fair redistribution of surplus value, which he thinks can't even happen within capitalism. His concern is the abolition of the alienated social relationships that make value production in the first place possible. That's what he's interested in. It's it's so interesting. This you know this stuff. It, it it really calls on people to think kind of quite rigorously about some of the rhetorical sort of traps we fall into while talking about kind of fairness and equality and stuff within the system. And I think we can get into kind of very tricky terrain here when people are kind of thinking through this stuff for the first time. But I think 
you know, your emphasis on alienation allows us to see why Marx's concern is so often about the way that human beings create things which then appear to or are used to dominate the very people who created it. And obviously, as you say, the, the history of the, the 20th century would suggest there was like some wisdom in being cautious about the way in which apparently emancipatory ideas or creations themselves can become kind of instruments of domination. So so I wonder if this is like, you know, drawing on what you're saying there is maybe a, a place to, to talk a little bit about that, that idea that comes under the slightly intimidating phrase, negation of the negation. Because I think this is like, this is actually really important. Um, the risks of this kind of sham universality, which arises from, from simple negation. Is there an easy way to, to grasp this con- concept or to explain it concretely? Well, I, I sure hope there is. I, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Hegel <laughs> <laughs> uh, has a very famous chapter in the Phenomenology of Spirit, which of course is work that Marx focused on quite a bit early in his career. Later, it was more the science of logic, but in any case, absolute freedom and terror. Uh, it's a critique of the Enlightenment, and it's a critique of the ultimate logical conclusion of Enlightenment utilitarianism, which is the French Revolution. Uh, and the notion of opposition negation to all that stands in the way of the supposedly free individual, right? So down with this, down with this, down with this, down with this, okay? And so you get uh, a kind of a permanent negativity, negation of anything that gets in the way of the ego being able to be free from anything that gets in the way of its development. And his critique, Hegel's critique of this, is that this does not actually lead to a uh, transcendence or a positive outcome. It leads to the great terror, right, of the the French Revolution. The negation of the negation is addressing what? Negation is always dependent on the object of his critique. When you say you don't like something, you're not free from the thing you don't like because you're focusing on what you don't like in the course of opposing it. And this is the trap that we easily run into, right? We say we don't like racism or sexism, but do we replicate the structures of racialized ways of seeing or sexist ways of behaving in the very act of of, of claiming to protest them, to to oppose them? You can oppose capitalism uh, and you can oppose capitalist private property, but are are you dependent on the object of your critique to the point that you think, oh, well, the abolition of private property and the replacement of it with collective property that will bring us to the new society, something of this sort. Marx recognizes very early on from Hegel that negation is always uh, dependent on the object of critique and often does not free itself from it. So therefore, the negation of a phenomenon replicates that phenomenon at a higher level. Uh, it's almost like an anticipation of a counter-revolution within the revolution that we really see in the 20th century. So the negation of the negation is the negation not simply of the external obstacle that impedes your self-development, right? It's rather a critical reflection upon your act of negativity or a collective act of negativity to ask whether it is actually surmounting the problem that it's seeking to resolve. So the negation of the negation is self-reflexive. I'm not simply negating the system I don't like, but I'm calling into question my mode of questioning the system. To, to measure whether my opposition actually is an effective, leads to an effective transcendence of the problem I'm dealing with. And that is a much deeper dimension of negativity than um, the kind of common kind of negativity that we're all used to, that I make a list of all the things I don't like, and I make a list of all the campaigns I'm going to fight against. Very good. But the question is, for Hegel, the only true positivity for Hegel, the true positive transcendence comes through the negation of the negation, you get a lot of repetition of the same. Uh, that's why the phenomenology is not really a unilinear course of you know, upward movement. Uh, it's very jagged and you get re- regression, right? When there's reliance on this first negation and the second negation does not come to the fore. So I think Marx himself in his early writing says communism, and this is his words, communism is the position of the negation of the negation. Now, I don't, he doesn't use that exact words in Das Kapital, but he's saying essentially the same thing when he shows through his analysis, let us look directly at the value form of mediation in chapter one of Capital. Let's talk of the social form of labor that's responsible for all these problems of capitalism and let us think out how a negation of that does not just lead, as he calls it, to the abolition of capitalist private property within the context of the capitalist mode of production, it's a phrase he has in volume three, 
but how the negation of capitalist private property leads to a genuine transcendence into the free association of the producers. If you don't get that second negation that produces that positive outcome, well, then your destruction of the property form just becomes another variant of capitalism. That's amazing. That was a, that was exactly what I wanted from that. Um, which because it's 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 difficult terrain, right? And I mean, I think it strikes a lot of people when they come to reading Marx for the first time, and you're suddenly confronted with this question of what it is, uh, you know, the question of commodity and money and exchange in these kind of incredibly dense first three chapters, which then blossom out like if you make it through them, then blossom out into this kind of very textured. Um, analysis of struggle and the history of struggle and the concrete forms that exploitation might take, um, but uh, which we can come on to because I think the question of history is really important to, to your account um, of Marx. But what I, I, I wondered, maybe we could just pick up, you know, just to, to, finish, to round out our, our, our consideration here about um, uh, the negation of the negation is that, you know, obviously this plays into the way that he's thinking about other thinkers on the left and on the radical left in his time. So he critiques Proudhon, he, criti- he critiques Fourier as a kind of crude and th- like a really bad example of, of this stuff, actually, um, a kind of you know, application of concepts that are kind of internal to the logic of property, uh, inter- internal to the logic of, of, of capital, to the, the vision of a future state. You know, you know how, how does that critique play out for him? The critique of Proudhon is very, very interesting because Proudhon was an anti-authoritarian anarchist, yes. Um, But Marx looks at Proudhon who wants to organize exchange. He wants to get rid of money. He wants to get rid of the middle person. And he wants to pay, he wants workers to be compensated for the value of their labor. Now, that sounds like a great thing. Uh, We would be compensated for the value of our labor. We wouldn't have somebody ripping us off, right, Uh, and not paying us the value of our work. But Marx looks at that and says, well, but he's not questioning. He wants us to be paid for the value of our labor, which means that he still thinks of labor as something that uh, takes a form of value. Now, value is generally wealth that's expressed in monetary form. Proudhon wants to get rid of money. But Marx says, but if you get rid of money and you don't transform the social relations of production, which to him means not simply the property form, though it involves that, but it involves the form of labor itself, the actual praxis or the human relationship in the labor process, the hierarchy, but as oil, the internal alienation, or what he will express it in capital, he doesn't use the word alienation very much, but it means the same thing, the domination of debt over living labor. As long as this prevails, what you have is a situation in which um, the laborer is being Related, the labor is being treated as a thing, as something that is quantifiable like any other commodity. Now, he says you can get rid of money, but then something else serves, another commodity serves the purpose of money. <laughs> so you don't get away from that with Proudhon because you don't get away from the value form of mediation. You're not uprooting the very possibility of value production itself. And that's the target of Marx's critique. Many readers of Marx miss this. Um, so the, he has a running battle with Proudhon for decades, right? Because this was not only the predominant tendency in the in the radical movement of the time, right up through the Paris Commune, but it was also, he thought, uh, a very attractive theoretical and political blind alley that the workers' movement can go into. What he anticipates, though, he says, if, if we do things Proudhon's way, we get rid of the capitalists, but what we have is society serves now as the abstract capitalist. That's his phrase, Marx. The society becomes the abstract or universal capitalist. There's no capitalists, but you can still have capital because what is capital? Self-expanding value. If you don't abolish the basis of value production, you can have capitalism without the capitalist. Now, of course, it's a fanciful critique he's making in 1840s or something on this, and it says nothing like that exists. But when we get to the 20th century, it does <laughs> uh, in a certain form. So uh, again, it's not like Marx, it's not that he's a prophet. Marx is thinking out the logic of a wrong idea, in this case, Proudhon's, to its ultimate conclusion. And he's seeing that, so as attractive as this approach sounds, it's not quite there. So when you said, like, your first question, well, but didn't Marx not talk about blueprints of the future? Yes, he doesn't talk about blueprints of the future. But look closely at all of his debates with Proudhon, with LaSalle, uh, with Fourier, uh, with uh, 
mentioned so many others with his own colleagues within the German socialist movement, like Babel and Liebknecht, et cetera. It's all about what? It's all about defective understandings of socialism. <laughs> so he doesn't have a concept of socialism. How can he know theirs is defective? What I think is is kind of remarkable about about your account here is is and and that you know and the book in particular it really seeks to recover I think Marx's humanism um, you know obviously and and it's been there in in our conversation already you know partly in response to the horrors of the twentieth century but like also I think in response and I, th- I think you say this in in the book um, you know in response to the claim that socialism requires a perfect human being right that the the project of socialism is one of human perfectibility and actually one of the things that struck me is you note how often marx uses um humanism of various kinds to describe his political project and how sensitive he is to to the question of human contingency and human suffering and i guess a couple of things uh you know arise from me when i was reading this and thinking about this and and one is maybe a <laughs> an interesting question like would the marks of your reading get called an ultra-leftist by a significant part of the left over the course of the 20th century. Not only would he be called an ultra-left, I think most Marxists, not knowing who was behind the name, if he came back to life without a beard or something and had a different last name and said some (laughs) of the kind of things that he said then, he would be considered not a Marxist, uh, which is very interesting. Because uh, so many people seem to think like, what's a Marxist analysis of the given phenomenon? Well, you got to show that uh, the economic factor is a determining one in the final instance, right? Okay, uh, that's Marxism. That's historical materialism. When you actually look at Marx's works, when he actually writes about an, a political f- or a social phenomenon of his time, you very often find that's not what he's doing. He didn't take the position that the American Civil War was just a clash between Northern capital versus Southern lack of capital, or that it was over, you know, the. Um, uh, the, the question of the difference of tariff policies or the effort of northern industrialists to, you know, knock the uh, uh, the southern aristocracy out of the way for the sake of intercapitalist competition or something. He says, no, it's about slavery. That's what the Civil War is about. Uh, it's about this this need to um, this 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 problem in American society. The class struggle could never fundamentally advance so long as there was chattel slavery and racism is an impediment to the formation of class consciousness and class solidarity. So that is, in certain senses, the primary issue that has to be focused on. Now, a lot of Marxists say, no, no, class is the first issue, is the primary issue to focus on, right? Uh, And they think they're being a Marxist by saying this. They're taking some conclusions of a particular analysis that Marx has. Another example of this is, well, we all know, presumably, that the proletariat is the only revolutionary force and the peasantry because they like to get their own property, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're at least, at the very least, a distru- a, an ally that can't be trusted or if not outright reactionary. And Marx says plenty uh, in his many of his earlier writings about the German or the French proletariat that sustains that position. But he doesn't say that when he gets to look at Russia in the 1870s and 80s, and he sees that, hey, they've got a really active peasant movement in a country that's barely got a viable proletariat, and he sees that the peasantry could possibly, given certain specific historical conditions, be the subjective agent in not only making a revolution, but possibly bypassing the capitalistic stage of development, so long as there's also a revolution in the West that comes to their aid, et cetera, et cetera. Now, a lot of people, that was, a a lot of people look at that, his his position on Russia. At the time, the founder of Russian Marxism, Plakhanov, was given a letter by Vera Sasulich that Marx wrote her she asked him this question, does Russia have to go through an extended period of capitalism before he can be ready for socialism? Marx wrote this letter to her. She shows the letter to Plakhanov and says, I'm confused by his answer. This doesn't sound like what Marx would tell me, but it sounds like that's his position. And Plakhanov took the letter and shoved it in his drawer for the next 20 years. Wouldn't allow anybody to see it because it contradicted his understanding. So he knew more Marxism than Marx, of course. So Marx is a much more because it's a because it's not a set of fixed conclusions. It's not what Hegel called the monochromatic formalism, of simply taking uh, conclusions from one work and pasting them onto another historical development that doesn't fit it. The, 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 what dialectics means is a word that's used far too often. I think I try to use it as few as little as possible because it's so often misused. But fundamentally, a dialectical approach is one that grasps the nature of the thing itself. 
You grasp the internal dynamics and the being of the phenomena you're investigating without resorting to examples or imposing some schema or model from some other subject matter. It's a matter of capturing the self-movement of the subject matter itself. And that's a high, that's a very hard thing to do, by the way. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you're going to be a call, if you're going to talk about dialectics, you better be doing that. <laughs> um, I, I guess like one of the other things I wanted to pick up in, 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 in this account is, is just the question, you know, freedom, right? So freedom, which is often thought of as the, the kind of special domain of capitalists, you know, free market, free people, all that. But, but freedom is really, really central for the, the marks that you describe. And it's, it's, you know, crops up in the Grundrisse very often in terms of his kind of preferred term for his political project. I just wonder, you know, and I, I've been thinking a bit about the, the kind of conclusion to, to your book, that book that we can come on to talk about in a bit, but the way in which capital will, will very often kind of creates this kind of bad infinity of new desires because it's endlessly self-expanding. It needs to endlessly self-expand. There needs to be kind of consumer desire and so on and so on. What does the conception of freedom that comes out of Marx's work do to the conception of freedom that is sort of mainstream within sort of capitalist doxa what does it what does it throw what light does it throw on that that concept of freedom very good question well uh, first of all when marx uses the term freedom uh, it's very often in different contexts right so when he talks about free wage labor it's always in scare quotes right so uh, wage, wage labor appears to be free because it's a contractual relationship you sell yourself to the boss for the, you sell your labor power to the boss the boss in exchange agrees to pay you presumably. So there's a quid pro quo. So it appears to be a freely, a free contract, a freely negotiated contract. Um, but of course, he says beneath that seemingly uh, seeming appearance of, of the free exchange lies a despotic plan of capital in which actually the worker has no control because they're not allowed to control the process of production. That pace and the form of production is set by the boss and, or by the machine or even by socially necessary labor time, independent of both. Right. That's really the so- core of his critique of value production. What Marx therefore means by freedom, the bourgeois concept of freedom is based on freedom from, freedom from external impediments. So you are, as an individual, so to speak, one to, and this gets back to our question about first negation, right, versus second negation. You, the individual seeks to free themselves uh, from any external impediment to their self-development. Now, this is actually completely uh, conforming to the logic of capital. Because the logic of capital wants to self-expand regardless of any external obstacles, including natural obstacles. So uh, capital will consume the earth. It will destroy the environment. Consider that a mere externality as long as that process augments value, augments profit, augments surplus value. Okay. So in a sense, the bourgeois notion of freedom as freedom from and the enrichment, so-called enrichment of the individual through this kind of negative freedom, which we call that in philosophy, negative freedom. It's actually, it's an ideological expression of the capital relationship. Freedom for Marx, on the contrary, is the freedom to exercise the human capacity or your species being, which he makes, takes great pains to say several in numerous places in his work, our specific human capacities are integral to natural capacities. There's a metabolic relationship between humanity and nature that is the basis of our ability to function socially. Okay, so if that meta, if that interaction is 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 interrupted, right, the very basis of our social existence gets interrupted. So freedom for Marx, therefore, is freedom to, it's freedom to be able to express this ability to enjoy what he called a totality of, man, of human manifestations of life, but within the context of who we are, which gets back to your point on perfectionism, Marx sees that he, when he used the term humanism, it's interchangeable with naturalism. And what is naturalism? Naturalism is, well, we're natural beings, but we're not only natural beings. We also construct all kinds of cultural artificial creations from out of that, the material provided by nature, but we are natural beings. We cannot go beyond the boundaries of natural limits. And that's his humanism. There's bourgeois variants of humanism or other variants of humanism, which ignores natural limits and basically says, oh, human self-development, qua human self-development, it, it should be cherished to hell with everything else. That's not a Marxist humanism because a Marxist humanism is based on this notion of 
this metabolic interaction between humanity and nature. And you can't fulfill your humanity without fulfilling your reciprocal obligations to nature. So it means, of course, that there's no basis for an assumption of human perfectibility. The new society will not be perfect. This is why Marx says that communism as such is not the goal of human development. It's simply the goal that we're striving for in transcending capitalism. What is beyond that? There's obviously going to be contradictions, limitations, all kinds of, there's going to be more revolutions to be made. What they are, that's for the next generations to know. Maybe that's this is a good point to draw out the question of kind of imminence in history, right? Um, so as you've said, Marx is kind of deeply, deeply interested in history in a way that, that, that isn't obviously on, that it would necessarily be the case, right? It's not obvious that, that you would go and study kind of pre-capitalist modes of production uh, if, if you're interested in changing the, the current mode of production. Um, but, but Marx is. I mean, he's interested in both in the history that's unfolding around him, um, which you can see in his journalism, right? That, that if, if, if there's any journalism that really is a first draft of history, it's Marx's. Uh, really, really interested in, in kind of the detail and really interested in kind of the, the, the weird multiplicity of kind of class formations, really multiple class formations that, that, that you get there. Um, uh, you know, but, 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 but you know, he's, he also makes these kind of very extensive studies of, of non-capitalist modes of production. So why is this question of, uh, you know, why is historical study so, so central to his thinking about what an alternative to capitalism or how we reach a kind of alternative to capitalism? Yeah, it's because uh, from the beginning of his uh, intellectual career, he seeks the ideal, as he put it, within the real itself. Uh, this is why he's against cookshops for the future. But when somebody says, I seek the ideal with, or the future new society within the seeds of it, within the existing society, it's not a negation of thinking about the future. It's the way you think about the future. So if you think about the future disentangled from historical process, disentangled from actual human struggles for liberation, if you don't learn, look, if you don't learn something from the, from, from the freedom struggles of your day, uh, you're in trouble. So I would even say, just to jump into this, if, you, if one has not changed one's mind about something or learned something from the events of 2020, these massive anti-racist movements following the murder of George Floyd and the way the whole new generation of these Black youth, the Latinx youth especially, have really transformed the debate about policing and prison and so much else, at least in the United States and very much elsewhere as well. Mm-hmm. If one doesn't acknowledge that, hey, this is something really important, whatever limitations it might have, it's something really important that maybe I got to orientate my thinking or reorientate my thinking in light of it. That's an ongoing historical phenomenon. And it is from there that we can articulate forms of association that can transcend the very alienated forms of praxis that we're forced to endure today. And that's what Marx, I see, tries to do. He's looking at, he's interested in, of course, the struggles happening in his time, but he's also interested in like what, what how, how do people organize their land tenure systems? How do they take care of the land or the agriculture so to avoid depleting the soil in pre-capitalist societies? What forms of association do men and women have? Well, he discovers these ethnological notebooks written in the last but two years before he dies that, wow, Irish women had so much more liberties before British colonialism uh, took over Ireland. And he's interested in that not because he thinks, oh, we can go back to where Ireland was prior to the development of capitalism, but because there are these forms of human association that show the possibility for a future kind of reorganization of the world. And so you have to be attuned to the contemporary freedom struggles if you just tune them out with that all too knowing look, oh, we know they're going to fail. You know, they might fail. I mean, they usually do. But the point is that even when a freedom struggle fails, it teaches you something about the course of development that human beings are capable of, of navigating. And so, but you also do this in terms of historical studies, yes? And trying to unearth this rich history of, of, uh, of, of efforts to get out of forms of oppression, exploitation, alienation. And so without that, uh, your theory becomes very wooden and very stale. One of the things you're saying there about you know the, the, how often struggles fail, it reminds me of uh, a line of Rosa Luxemburg's about the Golgotha path of, of the working class in, in its journey towards emancipation. Uh, and maybe that's an opportunity for us to kind of just broaden it out a little bit. And obviously, we're in a Luxembourg anniversary right now. And because it's the 150th anniversary of her birth, it's therefore also the 150th anniversary of the Paris Commune as well. 
same year. What a year to be born. <laughs> I, I mean, you stress in, in, in the Marx book that, that, you know, Marx is interested. He's got this conviction that, that political transformation of the kind that he really believes to be necessary is, is very likely to come, very likely to, to entail, perhaps even necessarily entails, a really sharp break. You know, Luxembourg also believes this. She certainly, you know, her thinking about revolution is very subtle. Actually, it's much subtler than it's often caricatured as, sure. But, you know, she's, she's, she's all in on a, a break, right? The commune also, uh, you know, is, is in its political practice a break and obviously influences Marx, Marx's thinking about this as well. Um, so, so has the course of history since then, since 1919 in, in, in Luxembourg's case, but, but since earlier in, in, in Marx's case, has the course of history given us cause to, to re-examine that sense of the necessity of a sharp break? Well, it depends on what kind of break is made. Um, you know, it's like there was a very uh, popular slogan, which I was really taken with in my younger days, and then I thought more about it. Now I'm not so sure. Uh, painted on the Sorbonne in 68, you know, make the impossible possible, you know? Well, sure, that sounds great. Because a lot of things that seem to be impossible, the system tells you is impossible, actually can be done. I mean, you know, we can raise the minimum wage, really can have, you know, med- med- medical coverage for all, even though the system says it's impossible, et cetera, et cetera. But the general notion is also could be used in a very reactionary way, right? That my will can reshape the world or our will can reshape the world according to our dictates. Now, there is a strand of Marxism that went in that direction. And Maoism is that strand. And the ultimate fulfillment of that strand is Pol Pot, right? I mean, there's somebody who wanted to make a sharp break, right? Uh, as he understood it very poorly of what capitalism is, and what the what the break should be about. And that leads straight to genocide, right? I mean, imagine trying to talk even this day, 30 years later, 40 years later, Try to go to Cambodia and say, I'm a Marxist. Let's talk about Marxism. Imagine what you'd have to, the amount of explaining you'd need to do, right? So yes, there needs to be a break, but it's a break that one has to involve, and this is, of course, Mrs. Luxembourg always emphasizes this. There cannot be a minoritarian revolution. You cannot have a minoritarian working class, even with the most pow- even with the most sophisticated vanguard party possible. It cannot provide a transition to socialism unless the vast majority of the oppressed the oppressed consciously willfully commit themselves to the cause of emancipation but this gets us right back to the issue that you opened up this uh, interview with how can you commit people to the cause of emancipation if you're not telling them what is exactly the nature they're going to be um, what's the nature of that emancipation what is the nature of that socialist society that they should be willing to put down their lives for Now, you could get away with this in her day without articulating that. Why? Because there was an assumption that as capitalism moves from free market to more socialized and statified forms of association and society, this will itself, by itself, provide the material conditions for socialized means of production, hence socialism. So it's going to happen anyway. We just want to make a revolution and get there sooner rather than later. But history is moving in this direction, in this unilinear fashion. and therefore, um, there's no need to, to spend our time debating the fine points of a new society, because as Marx said, we all know it's going to get there sooner rather than later, because capitalism is preparing the way for it. But then you had societies that concentrated the means of production in the hands of the state, that abolished private ownership, that got rid of uh, unregulated markets. And you had a, a monstrosity emerge, which Luxembourg certainly would have opposed if she criticized Lenin in 1918 for what he did. Just imagine, God forbid, she was able to see Stalin. I mean, she would, oh, I can't even imagine it would have like a volcano going off. So the, the point here is, is that, yes, we need a break, but it's got to be a break that, one, is articulated consciously, openly. What is it? We need to break from value production. Which, and, and it's so... Uh, it's so predominant and it's been around for so many centuries that even some Marxists think that value production is a transhistorical phenomenon that continues in socialism as well. Well, if it does, then the whole notion of socialism comes back to what? Uh, Some administrative uh, uh, regulation of markets and property? That's what we're going to give our lives for? So it's got to be more than that, right? We want to change our lives. We want to change the fabric and texture of our everyday existence. That's what we want, right? That's what we all want. So why don't we articulate that in a humanist vision and 
Of course, it has to be checked, that vision, against real-world struggles. It has to be checked in all kinds of ways. But the point is, without that kind of humanist vision, what do we have to offer people in the way of a, of a revolution that can actually overturn a system like this? And I think it's the absence of that discussion that is what has fed uh, so much of reactionary politics in the last several decades, because it's a void in discussing that emancipatory alternative. And so then you have very simple answers offered by reactionaries. And that's the fundamental issue we have to battle today. I read I read the, the Marx book when it came out or shortly after it came out back in, it must be sort of 2012. And it's really interesting because it's, it's situated at, at a moment at, at which there's obviously this, this kind of post-financial crisis, new interest in, in, in socialism, new interest in the left. And I, I guess, you know, we've seen since the emergence of various things calling themselves socialism, it seems to me the word socialism in the United States has all sorts of meanings from, from kind of very kind of bland welfare liberalism to sort of totally bizarre Texas Maoism and things like that. Towards the end of the Marx book, like you're thinking about, you know, how, how we can draw on this thought now, right? And, you know, there's an argument you make there that seems to me to have some resonance with Luxembourg's sensibility in, in her work, the, the work in the accumulation of capital, um, the work in the anti-critique, that, that we don't necessarily actually have the luxury of trusting in history, as, as you're saying, or, or or, or just the development of productive forces that we have like these kind of quite different questions in front of us, right, which aren't actually just about kind of political action to, to, to undertake redistribution, but um, are, are really deeply concerned with actually what we do about the restraint of the productive forces, right? You know, I mean, this is a really new question in some ways. So given kind of how profoundly Marxism has been associated with that, you know, wrongly or rightly, um, probably, you know, wrongly to some degree, with, with that 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 question of just the automatic development of productive forces and that those will bear some kind of emancipatory quality itself. You know, how do we even begin to approach this question? You know, are there resources? Do you see resources, um, you know, in the way that the left has been developing over the course of the past decade or so, which I think is, you know, it's a very mixed story. I mean, it's much more hopeful than it was, I think, you know, when I was, you know, 18 or so and, you know, becoming politically active. I think it's much better now than it was then. But like, there's so much reliance on these kind of old models of thought, these old kind of cliches about what it means to be on the left, this kind of, you know, almost naive trusting in in, in this this question of the development of the forces. So where do you see, where do you see these questions playing out? Do you see kind of fresh thinking on this stuff? Well, there's a lot of fresh thinking uh, uh, thinkers doing uh, uh, radical ecology and uh, the critique of the Anthropocene and all this kind of material that's, uh, or oh, the Capitalocene, which is what I prefer to call it, <laughs> uh, following Andres Malm. There's a lot of very interesting work that's being done by a number of people on this, is that, and yes, uh, it's understandable. Look, I mean, to be frank, um, what made Marxism so attractive uh, to the non-Western world? Because actually, that's where it became took really took on a male space, right? Uh, first in Ru the Russian Revolution, but of course it was a minoritarian revolution in terms of support for a Marxist perspective. But nevertheless, they were able to get it through with a through what happened in nineteen seventy October nineteen seventeen. But why were there so many in China? Why was there so many in Latin America and Africa, etc.? It was for understandable good reasons in a certain sense. Uh, certainly the need for the development of the productive forces, that capitalism was not engendering, right? Because of the unequal, uh, uh, the social, the international global division of labor, which still very, very much hangs over us more than ever, perhaps, which prevents a certain type of productive forces from being adequately formed in those societies. I mean, we're still looking at, I mean, the amount that Chile, for instance, uh, uh, dependent upon raw material exports, even as advanced industrially developed a country as Chile, let alone other places in Africa, so, but the problem is, is that the it's this emphasis on the development of the productive forces forgets about the, the, the quality and the relationship of, of, of the human relationships that makes possible that augmentation of value that's involved in their extraction and production and distribution. So um, now Mar Marx himself uh, is living in an era where it still appears that it's the inadequate development or insufficient development of the forces of production that's the main hindrance to a new society. And Luxembourg is still kind of in that moment, right? Uh, we're living in a moment that's clearly on the other side of that. The problem we have to solve is not the development of the productive forces, but their dismantling to a certain degree. Now we need, this is a question that the left has not succeeded in really answering, 
to a large degree. We need, especially in the developing world, there needs to be some form of industrialization. There needs to be economic growth and development. But how can it be done non-capitalistically? That is a question Ryan Dunievskaya, my mentor, who was the founder of Marxist humanism, I mean, she was hammering at this point in her work, especially in the 1950s and 60s. What is a non-capitalistic path of industrialization for the developing world? And by implication, for the developed world, right, uh, that we can learn from them. And there was a number of efforts to try to point in that direction. Fanon was looking in that direction himself, cut short by his death, but he had some very interesting things to say in The Wretched of the Earth in the last chapter on the last chapters on this. Um, but it was kind of dropped, right? It didn't really take off that discussion. Now I think there's a chance of that discussion really gelling uh, because there's a realization that uh, uh, it's, it's not just the ownership question that's the decisive one. Because frankly, ownership is less and less important, right? It's what's really, we're learning more and more now that what really is the force that's driving our exploitation is not the individuals who own the means of production. It's the abstract forms of domination that compel them to act the way they do in relationship to their ownership of those means of production. The means of production are really owned, if you want to use it in a broader sense, by the factory clock, by the by the abstract universal labor time that compels its necessities upon the agents of social production. So we have to figure out how to establish new human relations inside and outside the workplace that reorganizes time so that time does not control us, but we control time. That time becomes, as Marx put it, the space for human development rather than mere means to augment economic wealth and value and money and profit. That's the question. And uh, Martin Hagelin, by the way, has a very interesting book, This Life, uh, that discusses this in very vivid detail and has some very interesting ideas in this that's trying to rethink Marxism, the democratic socialism, in light of this question of the reorganization of our time determination. This is a big issue in my book as well. And this, I think it's, that's the vein of Marxist theory that opens up the questions that really respond to the kind of pr- problematic that you're posing. You were saying just, um, just earlier as we were talking, you were saying that it's vital to keep one's mind open to to the movement and the way the movement changes and the way the movement surprises you, I guess. So, you know, as an intellectual looking towards the movement, where where do you see hope? Oh, I, I see hope in this. Um, you know, when, when I meet these young activists who are so devoted to defunding police, prison abolition, etc., and they f- fully know how hard this work is. I mean, and we're living in Chicago, right? I mean, I live in Chicago, and you know, the, you know the history of that of that Chicago Police Department, right? The Chicago black sites and stuff like that. And what you just see from their focus on what seems to be a particular issue, which you can say, well, that's you know, whatever. That's, that that doesn't take up the central contradiction of capitalism or whatever. But it's people who are open to uh, and are actually trying to work out how to create a new humanism in that battle against policing and against prisons. In other words, the thing that was so remarkable about the protests this summer is I've gone to so many demonstrations of my life. I mean, you go, you march, you chant, you shout, you might feel good about that, and then you go home, okay? (laughs) But I had, from the very first events and every event I attended, it was this feeling of, because of the mutual aid emphasis and everything else, and just the spirit of solidarity, people coming over you, are you okay? What can can we do? Is there anybody hungry? Uh, to, you know, if you get arrested, here's what to do. There was a sense of like, it was almost like almost communism in action, right? It, it was remarkable. And from a new generation of, you know, 16, 17, 18, 20 year olds, etc., who just embody that sense that this is what politics should be about. That's really hopeful. If that's what politics really becomes about and we continue what emerged in 2020, and of course it has roots going way back before, we're going to be a lot better shape. That's it for this week. You can pick up Peter Hudis's book on Marx from Haymarket, and it might just give your head a real spin. My thanks to Peter for joining me today. Stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM. You've been listening to Navarra FM, and I have been, and I will continue to be, James Butler. And I will be back at the same time, in the same place, next week. Bye-bye.
This broadcast, like all the Cornucopia of content you can get at Navarra Media, is only possible through the small donations of hundreds of people like you. Join them. Go to navarra.media slash support.